I'm Asha George. I'm a professor at the School of Public Health at the University of the Western Cape, and I'm delighted to be part of this webinar series um, talking about an extremely important topic in terms of the social divides that have been uh, exacerbated by COVID-19. Um, this is part of a whole series of webinars um, by the Health Justice Initiative and the People's Health Movement, um, as well as the African Alliance. Uh, we had, I think it was up here on the screen as you joined, um, the the, what the series entails. Thank you for putting it up. I think it's a phenomenal, provocative set of topics because it, uh, the first webinar was uh, on the 14th of October, it really places um, the prime driver of inequalities, greed, uh, in, in our capitalist system. How has, um, why do we have these social divides and how has COVID-19 highlighted uh, some of the problematic dynamics at global and national levels? And we had a very exciting set of speakers across the world uh, and across the continent. Um, to talk about that issue. Today, we will be building on that to talk about um, some, not so much, well, partly the origins of the social divides, but the many different dimensions of the inequalities that were there before COVID-19, but have been exacerbated and made worse by COVID-19. Um, and we have three speakers who will be talking about the different dimensions of that. Um, I will be introducing each one. And to give you a, a sense of uh, the structure of the webinar and some housekeeping rules before I make some introductory remarks. Um, you are all, I think, in the Zoom meeting. So I think the speakers have their cameras on and um, what I will do is when we are not speaking, I will put my um, microphone on mute. And if anyone who is not speaking, in the meantime, if you could keep your microphones on mute to improve the quality of the call, that would be helpful. And we welcome all your input, introductions in the chat box, but also questions and queries as we begin. We will have, as I said, three um, speakers from across the continent, but we will also be bringing you voices from the front line. And they will be, some of them are, uh, I hope will have made it uh, to the webinar as well. But in case they haven't been able to, we have some videos as well, some perspectives from, the, from communities, from community health workers. So the structure of the webinar is after I kick off, um, we watch those videos together, and then we will have one speaker 
sharing reflections about the topic um, that was discussed in the video, bringing their own insights and reflections and provocations. Um, so we will have three videos and each video will be followed by a speaker. And then we'll have a chance to interact. So we will kick off with some discussion dialogue amongst the panelists, uh, following up on the questions, uh, the topics that were the reflections that were made. And then we're really looking forward to discussing with all of you um, your own reflections and questions of what have been the most um, problematic aspects of COVID-19 in terms of amplifying social inequalities. And what have not just the drivers of that and the consequences of that, but also looking to the next webinar series in terms of what are uh, ways in which solidarity movements, what are ways in which people have come together, um, opportunities for change, how have these inequalities sparked change and greater awareness as well. So that's the structure of the uh, webinar. We will be together for two hours. That sounds like a long time, but actually I'm sure once people start talking, um, there we're, we have some very passionate speakers. It will whiz by and we're looking forward to speaking with each one of you. Um, so I wanted to reflect a little bit. As I said, um, COVID-19 has only made more, if inequality, social inequality was already quite extreme before COVID-19 started. Um, and in some ways, COVID-19, whether you uh, believe, uh, irrespective of the debate of the origins of COVID-19, the reason why COVID-19 has had such an impact is a reflection of our globalized world in terms of our balance with the environment also how our economy is organized, how quickly it spread from China to other areas. And I think what's interesting in a sense is COVID-19 in some ways has been a leveler as much as it has amplified inequalities. It has been a pandemic that has touched everyone personally, no matter where you are in the world. Of course, Privilege still determines how you have been affected by the pandemic, without a doubt. Um, but it was something that initially spread to Europe. It followed the pathways of the economy and the pathways of privilege, um, even if we're all affected at the moment. And therefore, from China to Europe, and then from Europe to the rest of the world. Following the pathways of a globalized economy. I think the implications have been massive in terms of uh, the, there were swift measures, not just the implications from the pandemic, but also the implications from the lockdown measures. The response has also exacerbated inequalities. So those who could afford to protect themselves, and you see that now, not just in terms of housing, access to water and sanitation, and being able to isolate themselves. But currently now, with access to vaccines, it is so explicit in terms of who has access and who doesn't. 
but the implications of the lockdown in terms of the economic and social implications. It is really the most vulnerable, those working in the informal sector in agriculture, whose lives and livelihoods were put on hold and jeopardized. So it wasn't just our health that was affected, but our livelihoods and our um, the basis of our lives. And I think that has cut across social class, gender, um, those at the margins, those who are in the informal sector, but also vulnerable populations, the transgender community, sex workers, those migrants, those who are on the borders of what is considered legal or illegal in our society were severely affected. So we have an opportunity here to reflect on these different dimensions um, and not just the nature of the social inequalities in terms of urban rule and gender, but also how it has affected health, the ability of healthcare systems to respond. And so the three themes we'll be discussing today are public and private healthcare. What has the, how has the pandemic affected our ability to respond and the interaction between public and private um, healthcare systems? Um, we will have um, also focus on the urban-rural divide as well as the last speaker will be talking about the implications for gender and the gender nature of the health workforce. So starting on the first theme, um, I'm going to just, it, the first theme is about public-private divide. And I think the private sector is something, it is a topic that has been ever increasing and increasing in magnitude and increasing in concern. Um, in terms of our ability to understand how it's evolving, our ability to regulate, um, and its role is quite diverse. I think I'm always struck by, we say private, but what do we mean? There's informal providers and formal providers, traditional healers in rural areas are part of private. The nonprofit sector is quite important. Um, and that's quite distinct from the for-profit sector. And it's quite different from when you're dealing with individual providers or small hospitals versus the corporate sector. And in today's world, also, the private sector is, uh, includes medical tourism and how that affects who the elites, where do elites get healthcare. So there are many different dimensions of the private healthcare uh, sector. But it still stands to, there have been huge uh, challenges with COVID-19, as well as opportunities to seize. In terms of surveillance, um, how do we get data from the private sector in terms of um, tracking what's happening with COVID-19, but also looking at how do we leverage resources and coordination um, between public and private. Um, so let me pause there with those broad thoughts and um, we have a short video and then I'll introduce our speaker from Uganda who will delve in this with more depth. And I think the video will bring the, the broad issues of public and private to life by looking at really what are the challenges of the community. So let me pause there and let's go to the first video if we can. Thank you.
Uh, what I can say is that in the public sector, public se sectors now, uh, things are much easier because we have the right of access of health whereby you can get things without paying any money. Even now, what I can say, for, for an example, to vaccinate into public sectors, you are not taking out your money out of your pocket. You are doing that for free. So what I can say in the private sector, it's much difficult because I saw it for myself whereby I did go to the private sector, whereby I did have some symptoms of COVID. So when I was there and then they said I'm having some symptoms, so I asked them, can they test me for COVID? They said, no. If you want to test for COVID into a private sector, it means that you're going to take out money out of your pocket so that we can do the C-19 test. And then it's when I went to the public sector. When I get there, it was for free. So uh, for me, public sector is much easier because you are having the right of access of health, whereby you're getting everything for free than in the, in the private sector. Uh, it's free to, 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 to be tested in the public sector. Uh, the only problem with the public sector is that uh, the result takes you know, more than 72 hours. But in the private sector, uh, you get the result within uh, 12 hours, within uh, 24 hours per se. Uh, and yet that cost, it's like 850. So people, people because it's uh, locked down, some of the people are not working, some of the medical aids are not being paid. Uh, so most of the people were coming to, 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 and are still coming to the public sector because of that because of the funds and i think it's a, a a common problem in our clinics because as i'm working with um unit 10 clinic there are huge numbers of people which makes us um as health workers facing difficulties to even to attend some of them you'll find especially in this time of pandemic you'll find um maybe 500 people were inside the clinic for different reasons. Some of them were collecting medication, some of them were sick. You will find maybe a hundred of those 500 will be turned away and they will be asked to come back tomorrow morning. So that's the, and remember some of them have asked for day offs at work uh, and all that, but they will be asked to go back home because they are not being helped on that day. And there's a problem of a short staff in clinics the people who have passed on because of COVID, their posts have not been um, replaced. So it's a big challenge um, for us. That's why you'll find CHWs ending up doing things that are not on their scopes. Even the nurses, you'll find them leaving their main core duty doing something else. And they queue outside the clinic. And meanwhile, they are queuing and they fuck outside the clinic, the numbers. Then. Those who come for their ARVs must stand one side. Those who come for their, you know, that kind of discrimination now, you know, when people can see, it's not everyone that is ready to disclose about your sickness. But now this pandemic thing has made people um, dignity to, 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 to flow under, you know, 
because everyone now knew that Noe is taking Noe is on that line. Noe is taking ARVs. You understand? Go back to the thing that we fought for with UTEC about the discrimination, your dignity. Because when I'm not ready to, to open up about my business, I'm not ready, and it's my right, you know. So this, this coronavirus and this pandemic make things worse because your, your dignity, even if I, I didn't want everyone to know in my street that I'm taking ARVs, now they know. Because they saw no, we're standing in that queue. You understand? That's the worst part of it. Yeah, I think it has even killed um, the system that we had been using for so long. I'll make a few examples. Um, with us as CHWs, in my, in my clinic, we have a plan. That's on Monday we're doing this, on Tuesday we're, until Friday. So uh, when the pandemic came, it has stopped all the programs. We have Pilam Dwanas where we visit the kids on Tuesday and give them vitamin A and deworming. Those programs have stopped because now we are all focusing on this pandemic as if there's nothing else, as if there's no HIV, as if there's no TB, as if there's no child that we need to check what the child is growing well. So everything is put, is put on pause and stopped. You know, they, as you have seen, the vaccination sites have been open. They will want us to go and marshal there. And then our job, the proper job, is, is, is on pause. Uh, our government has really failed us. Why I'm saying that? Our health system before the COVID-19, we had a hazard. We had a, a health system that we complain every day a shortage of doctors, a stock out. When our people are sitting in the clinics, it was difficult for our seniors to access even those files I think, you know, there will, there will be no one standing in front of people and educate health promoters that says, okay, there was a day that I was mad. There were four seniors in our clinic, then they have to, to turn back because they're supposed to be six because they cannot open one chip if the six is not there. They have to wait for another two to come. And even so, before even there they, they, they can be an access to EE vaccine, there was shortage of EE vaccine. It was not like CTIC where white people are going. You know, that's why we said the same treatment that those people with e medical aids are getting, we need the same treatment in our areas also because there's time that people must wait at Kukuletu Clinic because Kukuletu must go and ask and go ask, send the car and go ask Hanover Park Clinic for the vaccine because there were no vaccine in our clinic. Meanwhile, we have a problem of doctors want to resign. They already resign because they wanted to resign those days because of the treatment they are getting also a lack of communication in their levels of doctors. I don't want to talk about that. But what is bothering us is that when the doctors are leaving our areas at the end of the day, uh, there's a problem to access health care in our areas. Most of the people were going to hospitals uh, the, the hospitals are overloaded. And we know how our public hospitals 
the, especially the administration part, how slow they are. Uh, so it may happen that most of the people died because of the administration or because of uh, the level of care uh, in whatever hospital they were in. They're, they're, on how fast was it for them to access the, 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 the whatever medication or oxygen or whatever uh, what they would need at that time. Thank you. Those were very compelling reports from across South Africa from community health workers who are working in the public sector, um, holding the line and reporting their experiences of how has it been with COVID-19. And I think they've shared their perspective of how critical the public sector has been in terms of access um, and making services available, but also the consequences of taking up that load um, uh, in terms of being the first point of call and in a system that was already under strain and what have been the implications for people's dignity, but also for the health workers who work in the, in the public sector. So I'm sure Moses will have more to share. Um, and um, I'm so grateful for the time of those community health workers. I hope some of them are on the call here today if they'd like to add further once we come to later in the webinar. Let me briefly uh, introduce our speaker. Um, many of you will know Moses. Moses Malumba is the executive director of the Center for Human Rights and Development in Uganda, which advocates for social justice in health systems in Uganda and beyond. He's a lawyer with special interests in international human rights, global health, and sexual reproductive health and rights. And I'm sure he'll have uh, some of what the community health workers had to say on the video resonates, I'm sure, very strongly from Uganda. Um, but he will speak about Uganda and his experience more broadly. Um, so over to you, Moses, on your own perspectives on the public. How has the public sector uh, um, faced COVID-19 and also the implications of the divide between public and private in our health systems? Thank you. Over to you. Thank you so much. And uh, I want to thank the organizers for this event, which is uh, a very timely one. And uh, to thank the participants who are able to join us this afternoon and, and morning and wherever they are, as we discuss the important subject. I am going to focus on uh, the question of the private versus the public, um, which has played out very loudly in the space of COVID-19. And I think that there has been no other space in the health system that has actually demonstrated the distinction between having health services delivered mainly through the public sector versus services delivered mainly through the private sector. And I think context is very important um, in this conversation. So COVID-19 um, took us by surprise. Um, no matter where you are, it took everyone by surprise. Those that are in low income status and those that are in high income status, I think everyone didn't know what to do. And I think it's the one of the health conditions that has not mattered what your status is, whether rich or poor, it was um, such a big thing. So because of that, it led to panic 
And uh, many of the approaches that we saw became ad hoc. So they required health systems that are actually uh, ready to respond to uh, emergencies, health systems that are ready to be able to give solutions in, in um, not necessarily in an organized way, but also in an um, ad hoc fashion. I think the response through the lockdowns also made things a bit worse because usually people lay claims on health systems when they are able to reach the health facilities. In communities like where I was based in Uganda, the lockdown meant that you actually needed a health system that is able to reach people where they are when they have been locked down. But also for the very first time, the reach that we are able to fly out to receive treatment that is specialized from elsewhere, we are also curtailed. So they could not uh, leave the country to go and receive health care elsewhere that they were getting, um, not because they did not have the money, but all other countries were also locked and also trying to fight the pandemic. So we all had to rely on our national health systems to deliver. Now, that tested the health systems much more than ever before. I think the other characteristic that was important is that for the very first time, the governments became masters. The governments were re-empowered to come back and play a major role. So even the most popular political governments, um, I think for the first time, they, people had to, to, re, to rely on them. Just by the president's word, we would make a health policy. And, and by the president's thought, a number of uh, public health interventions uh, were done. So they made us realize that actually the state has to be relied on, the government have, have to be relied on to be able to deliver because they should be the primary deliverers of, of, of the health services. I think in situations of emergencies, it was really made worse where the health systems are not able to provide the emergency. Uh, situations. Now, that being the condition, it's also important to know where actually the pandemic found us. I think I remember a few years ago, I just attended the health systems conference where everyone was talking about resilient health systems that are able to respond. And part of the conversations were around the global agenda that was moving very slowly but steadily from broader health systems building towards more specific economically viable approaches to health systems that deliver. So because of this, we found our health systems in situations where they had been customized in a manner that is economic in nature. So it means that where health systems, are, things don't make sense, people had not been investing in them. And part of it is historical. Leave alone the 80s where we are all discussing primary health care as a key investment area, where we're all discussing, you know, health promotion as a big thing. I think the pandemic uncovered this because, you see, if you tell us prevention is washing hands, prevention is covering our, our faces and isolating ourselves. These are all things that are part of primary health care, which we had not invested in, in the health systems, but also... The fact that when we had entered into structured adjustment programs, the governments had been convinced that they actually need to cut down the, the investments, um, the public expenditures. Governments had substantially cut down their budgets. And because they had cut down their budgets on social services like health, 
um, as preconditions for PRSPs, property reduction strategy papers in countries like ours, the private sector had slowly begun to penetrate the spaces where the government had left. So spaces like health, transportation, water, uh, education, the private sector had already eaten up. And indeed, where the government was not investing, the private sector had been investing. I do remember one of the assessments that was done around 2018 in Uganda, for instance, on delivery of uh, health services, public versus uh, private. It was found that between 2005 and 2012, the private sector had increased by 500%, moving their facilities from 277 to 1,488. Now, if you compare this growth to the public, the public had moved within the same period, grown to about 50%. Now, the private sector is, has been chasing delivery of health services. And as a result, at the moment in Uganda, for instance, delivery of health services in the public sector is at about 55%. And the private sector is taking on 45%. And this is an average. And when you talk about the delivery of health services and the quality of delivery of health services in the public sector, many people don't want to get there because these facilities are there, but they are not facilitated. If you compare them to the 45% of the private sector, whether private for profit or private for non-profit, they are actually much better services within these facilities. So in a way, the population ends up running to the sector that, that is much better facilitated than, than what we see um, uh, in, in, in the public sector. And surprisingly, in the context of Uganda, for instance, a third of uh, all health facilities are within the Kampala area, which is the capital city. So it means that largely in rural areas, even when people had COVID, they were not able to access the facilities that, that they needed. It is also observed that many of the health professionals that you would actually need in delivery of uh, services um, for COVID-19, like doctors, uh, pharmacists, people that do you know, administer oxygen and things like that are largely in the private sector. With qualified doctors, almost 80% of them spending much more time in the private sector than, than public sector. It is even shocking for specializations like pharmacists, where really senior pharmacists of up to 90% are delivering their services in the private sector and not the, the public sector. And these are, you know, are drawn from the, the government statistics. Because of this, the pandemic found a weakened state. Whether the government spoke or it didn't speak, by its own actions, it was already too weakened. So the government was depending and continues to depend on a fairly colonial system that is modeled around thinking that the health services should be provided in public. And yet the opposite is true. Health services are being provided in, in, the, in the private sector. The challenge with this is that all the colonial regulations, laws, policies that we've had, which still apply today, are regulating services that are provided in the public. And there is much less regulation for services that are being provided uh, by the private sector. So when it comes to regulation, I think it, it became even worse. The government could not 
for instance, regulate the practices of the private sector as they were administering treatment. I, I, I was one of the people who sued the government of Uganda for failure to regulate um, the prices because what we were watching in the pandemic was that people were entering into facilities and charged millions of shillings. The average bills being $10,000, 20000 and 30000 was was really a common thing that whenever you walked into a facility, you were supposed to be paying these services, especially if you ended up in ICU, things became very, very tough. So because of the absence of the regulation for the private sector, things actually became uh, quite tough. Investments in emergency care, which was the day, the order of the day on the pandemic, was not actually visible um, in the public sector. That even when the facilities were there for the public sector, if you ended up in an ICU, chances were that 95% you are going to be going into an emergency care for, for, for the private sector. So again, those that could not afford ended up staying at home and things became worse. The, the, the public sector has been exposed more during immunization because the entire immunization chain that we have at the country level and even other countries is immunization for children. We have never imagined an infrastructure that does immunization within the public sector for people uh, other than children. So because this is the infrastructure that we do have, even when we first got vaccines, they are very, very difficult to be administered because the primary infrastructure for administering that was actually not there. So key inputs like oxygen, like blood, which became essential, ambulances, were actually all owned largely by the private sector and not owned by the, 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 the public sector. Now, laboratories which we are testing, largely all the laboratories that we've been relying on have been private owned. And the few that were set up in the government and strengthened could not be able to, to, to manage. Uh, the pandemic demands that, that we are brought. So the result of this has been huge, huge hospital bills and catastrophic expenditure, which many people have actually faced. My organization has gone to hospitals to negotiate on behalf of clients who have been held up. There have been cases where people's titles for homes have been held even after the, the care the cases have been many. The number of letters we've written to private facilities to be able to release homes, to be able to release dead bodies. We've also had situations where dead bodies have actually been held in private facilities for failing uh, to pay. And it's surprising to argue that this is a free market economy. We cannot have uh, the regulation of, 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 of the private sector as much as possible. So I think for me, by way of, of opening the conversation up, we definitely need to think about how we have remodeled our health service delivery beyond just being private sector owned towards uh, a more public-led um, delivery of health systems. And I think this is something that is going to haunt us beyond just the crisis we've been dealing with in COVID-19. I'll stop there for now. Thank you, Moses, for bringing us, I mean, we had the videos that talked about that where community health workers spoke about their experience working in the public sector and the challenges. And then you brought in the context in Uganda, where you saw how the policy responses, the panic and what you said, the ad hoc responses, but also the opportunity, the, the realization you said of that government matters 
in many ways, both in its presence and in its absence. Um, and I think none of us imagined that we would all of a sudden be moved to being confined to your homes. It was such a strange reality and what that meant in terms of what we, healthcare we could access. Um, it, it was an opportunity for strengthening government. And I know I'm going off topic, but it has been in some places strengthen government too much. And, you know, government has used COVID-19 as a human rights lawyer to use COVID-19 as an excuse to lock down on um, digital communication, um, further criminalize social movements, you know. So some of strong government we need, but sometimes some government responses went, went overboard. But I think bringing into play what is really striking is how much, and it's very much true in South Africa, we have the public sector serves most of the public, but has doesn't have the resources the private sector has. The private sector has most of the resources, but doesn't serve most of the public. And what you said in terms of once you started looking at laboratories, providers, specialists, uh, testing, how much a lot of those resources were in the private sector. Um, it's a wake-up call and how our systems are not set up to regulate. Um, so thank you for that um, very um, detailed uh, reporting from Uganda of the many di dimensions in which the private sector and the price gouging, unbelievable, the, not, you know, the costs beyond ethics, we can say, and I'm so glad an organization like yours was there to, to monitor these facts and a wake-up call to how bad the healthcare sector can be uh, in terms of a profit motivation. So let's pause there and move to urban-rural. We'll come back to try and connect these across. And I was pleased you already said the private sector. One thing was that it's concentrated in urban areas. And that gives us a, a, a really important, a nice segue into our next topic. So let me stop talking myself and uh, welcome the videos that we have talking about the urban-rural divide, which you set up in your talk. Thank you. Okay, what I can say, because I'm living in a rural, in an urban area, uh, from our side, things are a little bit easier because we are not far from clinics and our houses are not scattered. The village are not so far. We are close to each other. Even when we want the ambulance, we can be rendered uh, a service very easily. So when I compare to the rural areas, in rural areas, uh, there are so many challenges because uh, clinics are very far, very, very far. You have to work, let me say, three kilometers so that you can go to clinics. Some of them, they go to clinics to the rurals, to the urban, because they are living in the rural, there is no clinics. And then what we can say is that even the transport, they cannot get the transport very easier. If they want to go to the clinic, they have to hire the farm workers or the farms that are nearby where are they supposed to go to the Jan Camp clinic, they as they are nearby vaccination sites, 
they are something some some other farms are three kilometers away some are four five kilometers away and there's also farms that are Farm, farm workers that are supposed to come to the same Jankem Dorpa vaccination site that are 20 kilos away from from from, from the vaccination site, and the struggle also was was for them to the community or the farm the community of farm workers to reach the vaccination site was based on was dependent on on their employer the farm owners whom sometimes they had trouble trouble of of of, of getting the, the 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 community to to the to the vaccination site the farm workers getting the treatment from the facilities or treatment getting them it's it's been difficult even before the the covid 19 because before the farm workers need to then get the treatment only after the community health care workers visit and 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 also if it happens that somebody amongst the families is having a cell phone that can call the ambulance to come and pick up a sick person to take into the health facility so it, it is now difficult and it's been difficult it's just that now the farm or the employer the farmers then are assisting in terms of getting them to the vaccination site because the department has, has I'll say, launched the, 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 the mobile clinic to go to such areas. But uh, when we find out is that now from, from the operation manager of the facilities, it's difficult because now there's no staff that needs to go with it ambulance or that mobile clinic to the farmers, to the farm areas. I just wish maybe the, the government, the Department of Health could just uh, uh, disperse more mobile clinics, even if it's, it's for time, for, for, for just for the process of ensuring that everybody get vaccine. Just disperse more vehicles to the farm workers to get vaccinated, more mobile clinics to go to the shakes where it's a little bit far for them to reach the facility then that could have that could have been a little bit easier for us and better so those were two um the voices from community health workers here in south africa talking about the challenges of um really getting access in rural areas and our next speaker i want to thank you for their time and perspectives I think it will, um, a lot of what they said will resonate. And I want to introduce the next speaker who will be talking more about this. And it's great. I welcome all comments in the chat box. And it's great to see um, um, additional comments in the chat box as we're talking. Um, so Itai will be um, speaking more about rural-urban divides. Africa is urbanizing, but that doesn't mean that we we still have huge um, problems in terms of getting access to rural areas. Itai Rusuke is the executive director of the Community Working Group on Health from Zimbabwe. Many of you know him uh, for his leadership role and his active engagement in PHM and many other form, uh, fora. He's a public health activist with more than 20 years of experience organizing involvement of communities in health actions in Zimbabwe. He's a member and chairperson of various health-related committees, as well as being the immediate past deputy chairperson of the Public Health Advisory Board in Zimbabwe. 
Itai, welcome your comments and reflections on urban-rural divides, and thank you for joining us. Yes, um, thank you very much, Asha, and uh, let me say thank you to the organizers of this webinar and uh, the fellow panelists and also the participants, you know, that are joining uh, this webinar. Uh, I think it is important for us to also have an appreciation that uh, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, people in rural areas uh, were feeling, you know, shortchanged uh, in terms of access, you know, to healthcare services. Uh, if we compare to their counterparts, you know, in, in urban areas. Uh, but, you know, the, the inequity challenges, uh, even though we're present, I think they've been exacerbated, you know, by the pandemic. Uh, it is also important uh, for us uh, to appreciate that uh, the lockdown restriction measures uh, to a greater extent, you know, disrupted, you know, access uh, to essential health services, especially for people living in rural areas. And, and in most cases, we have to travel uh, to the urban areas, especially to collect, you know, their uh, medications. And uh, those that are chronically ill, I think were the worst affected. Uh, we also noticed that, uh, you know, there were some issues you know, with the human rights abuse and also encroachment, you know, to patients' privacy, because it was very common, you know, during the initial lockdown, like in Zimbabwe, uh, whereby, you know, the police officers would want to see proof uh, on why, you know, the person was traveling, you know, to the nearest uh, uh, center or a town, uh, and, 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 and those who were or who are on, on art treatment were being forced you know, to show proof that, you know, they were on art treatment. So as a result of these disruptions, I think to a greater extent, it also affected, you know, the health-seeking behavior and, and also the disruptions uh, caused us to lose, you know, some of the gains, you know, that we had achieved uh, in the area of HIV, TB, malaria, uh, including family planning uh, programs. Uh, but it is also important uh, to note that uh, uh, most, uh, you know, rural centers uh, are not equipped, you know, or were not equipped to respond uh, to COVID-19. Uh, just like what my colleague, you know, Moses highlighted, you know, rural health centers in most cases do not have, you know, oxygen facilities. Majority of them do not have you know, ICU beds, and also the human resources uh, for health are also not properly, you know, trained, you know, to deal with the, a disease like COVID-19. And there are no laboratories anyway uh, in most rural communities. So as a result, you know, people in rural, you know, areas uh, faced some serious, you know, challenges in terms of uh, equity to access uh, uh, healthcare services. Uh, what we see in most African countries and uh, including in my own country, Zimbabwe, is that uh, uh, some people uh, when stick, you know, still walk very long distances, you know, up to even 30 kilometers uh, to the nearest, you know, 
uh, health facilities in order to seek treatment, uh, especially in rural locations. And, and that defeats you know, the noble you know, cause uh, of having you know, a health facility within an, an eight kilometer radius. Uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, it has also affected you know, the, 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 the referral system uh, in the rural areas. Uh, because what we see is that because of the shortages of, you know, emergency services, ambulances, it is very common to see patients uh, being transported in wheelbarrows, uh, patients being transported in scotch carts uh, because there are no ambulances. And, and, and that also becomes a challenge, uh, especially for, you know, uh, uh, maternity services. And, and we see a lot of, you know, people using alternative transport that is not even suitable in order to carry a pregnant woman, uh, say when there are complications and there is a referral uh, to the next level. Most rural you know, uh, communities uh, rely on community health workers. And, and these are usually uh, poorly you know, uh, equipped. And uh, the situation I think became even worse uh, during this uh, COVID period, uh, in terms of provision of PPE, in terms of provision of their tools of the trade, whether they are bicycles, uniforms, kits, and, and, and these are the same, you know, uh, community health workers that are also poorly remunerated. Uh, in the case of Zimbabwe, you'd realize that uh, our community health workers are not funded uh, from the national fiscal or from the national budget. Uh, either they are getting their stipends or allowances uh, from Global Fund or, or from UNICEF. So as a result, you'd find the, uh, the morale you know, for, 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 for uh, community health workers has really been going down because in some cases they realize that those that are under UNICEF are getting their allowances on time and, and, and those maybe under Global Fund uh, sometimes can go for six months or so without even getting their stipends. And, and in some cases, uh, also failure to get their uh, uh, tools of the trade. And, and uh, there's also challenges because of poor motivation. Uh, the numbers you know, for community health workers has also been going down over the years. And, and as a result, you also realize that uh, community health workers are, are extremely overwhelmed in terms of the work that they are doing. Uh, in Zimbabwe, they are only supposed to be working uh, like three hours in a day and, and also uh, only three days in a week. But what we see on the ground is that uh, community health workers are working 24-7. Uh, they are on duty every day. But unfortunately, there's poor acknowledgement and, and recognition uh, of the important role that they play. And, and these are the same cadres that have got you know, a direct interface with the community. They are the first to know and realize that if there's a health emergency in their community. But unfortunately, we are not doing enough uh, to recognize uh, the role of uh, 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 the community health workers. Uh, we also have another big challenge, you know, in most rural communities, because there are no, you know, uh, incentives for, 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 for nurses. Why should a nurse, you know, uh, go and work in a rural, remote rural community where there's no electricity, where the, the, road, the road network is bad, uh, where there are no good schools you know, to send children, their children. So as a result, you find most of these qualified nurses 
they then opt to go and work in urban settings uh, where they can also enjoy uh, 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 those other benefits uh, such as good communication, good schools for their children, uh, and, and better housing and so forth. And, 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 and we, we, we definitely need uh, to address uh, the issue of uh, the social determinants. Uh, it is very common uh, to see, you know, rural health facilities that are even providing maternity services, but without running water. And, and, and that also creates a challenge, you know, for the pregnant mothers who are then forced to go and fetch water, maybe from the unprotected well and, and so forth. And, and unfortunately, like I said, uh, the road network is generally uh, very poor in rural areas. Uh, communication network is, is also uh, 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 quite poor. Uh, what we see is that COVID-19 has deepened uh, the already you know, existing inequalities uh, between rural and, and urban areas. Uh, if you look at uh, testing for COVID-19, uh, the facilities in rural areas are not available. So as a result, we have not been sufficiently you know, uh, testing enough people uh, in rural communities. It is also common that uh, some of the community deaths that have been happening uh, in our rural communities are also uh, likely, you know, linked to COVID-19. So as a result, the, the risk of infection uh, becomes also very high because when, when someone dies in a rural uh, a community, uh, there are no COVID-19 tests being done and, and communities may not even, you know, observe the recommended guidelines. And, and as a result, uh, you would see that uh, a, a lot more people would get infected after attending the funeral. And unfortunately, some people have even lost uh, their lives, you know, after attending, you know, such funerals. Uh, there's also the challenge of uh, vaccine equity. Uh, if we compare, you know, uh, people in rural areas and, and to those in, in urban uh, communities, uh, mainly because of the poor uh, distribution services. Yes, the vaccines may be available, you know, in the country, but to get them to the rural and, and the remote locations uh, has always been a challenge. So what we now see is that uh, most African countries uh, are using the two doses uh, vaccines. And, and that has resulted in some people not completing, you know, uh, their vaccination and, and leaving some people not fully uh, immunized uh, because of so many barriers uh, that may result in someone not being able to come back and take their uh, second dose of the uh, COVID-19 vaccine. And there are also some serious challenges in terms of uh, 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 human resources for health. What we are now seeing in Zimbabwe is that uh, uh, previously, you know, nurses used to go on strike, uh, complaining about issues of incapacitation, their conditions of services. But since COVID-19, uh, nurses in Zimbabwe, they are no longer going on strike. They are just resigning and packing their bags and leaving. And, and unfortunately, because of Brexit, uh, the UK government has also come in a big way, you know, recruiting nurses not just from Zimbabwe, but from a number of African countries. So as a result, we are losing our nurses. Uh, we are now opting uh, to go and work uh, 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 overseas. Unfortunately, it is, it is mostly 
you know, the rural, you know, health facilities uh, that, 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 that are waste affected because of the general poor uh, uh, conditions of services. Uh, when we started our national vaccination rollout program, initially Zimbabwe started by prioritizing, you know, frontline health workers. But what we also noticed was uh, there was an information gap uh, in terms of COVID-19 vaccine literacy. And this information gap, I think it, 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 it mostly affected uh, those in rural areas because people in urban communities at least had access you know, to television, radio, uh, newspapers, and other platforms. So uh, the issue of vaccine hesitance that we saw at the beginning of the national rollout program was mainly as a result of the information gap. And like I said, this information gap, unfortunately, uh, it affected the people in rural areas uh, more than their counterparts, you know, in urban communities. So because of that information gap, uh, there was the, you know, uh, 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 the vaccine hesitance, you know, uh, anti-vaxxer, you know, uh, science denialism, which then also resulted in the low uptake uh, of vaccines. Uh, just for example, Zimbabwe is planning to vaccinate uh, at least uh, uh, 10 million Zimbabweans, uh, which translates to about 60% uh, of the population. But we started our vaccination program way back in February. But up to now, Zimbabwe is being said to be one of the countries that is doing very well. But look at the figures. Uh, we only have slightly over 2 million, uh, 500,000 people uh, that have been fully vaccinated, and about slightly more than three million uh, that got their, you know, a festive uh, uh, jab. So it then becomes a challenge in terms of reaching that yet immunity uh, of vaccinating at least uh, ten million Zimbabweans. So the issue of uh, 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 vaccine literacy, the inf- the issue of information, uh, unfortunately, it has affected more of the people you know, in the rural areas uh, than those in, in, in urban communities. So as a result, uh, my organization has been you know, training community health workers right from the beginning of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Because to us, rural, rural uh, 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 village health workers and even community health workers in some urban areas, they are the trusted sources of information. And to us, those have made a huge difference in terms of encouraging communities, you know, to embrace the vaccine, in terms of being, you know, the vaccine champions, vaccine ambassadors in their communities. So I think for me, uh, COVID-19 gives us an opportunity, you know, to bring back the primary healthcare approach uh, to the health agenda. We need to uh, revive, you know, the Alma-Ata principles, uh, we need to make sure that there's community ownership. We need to make sure that there's co- community participation. We need to make sure that we have, you know, informed communities so that even on the issue of, you know, COVID-19 vaccine, people should appreciate why it is important for them to get, to get vaccinated rather than uh, to use the other strategies that we are seeing, uh, uh, sort of trying to, you know, uh, bring the issue of mandatory vaccination and so forth. We need to make sure that communities are knowledgeable, 
communities appreciate why they should be vaccinated. We need to share with the communities why more than 85% of the people uh, who are being hospitalized or dying from COVID-19 are those that are not vaccinated so that we can have a lot more people you know, uh, uh, embracing the vaccine. But most importantly, let's put people at the center of this COVID-19 approach. Thank you, Ty, for covering so much. I mean, you, you systematically went through all the ways in which rural areas are disadvantaged, but also brought the issue of we need to, why it's so critically important to strengthen the community health workforce within a broader primary healthcare setting. And I know we have more voices from community health workers themselves, and where I want to make sure there's enough time for dialogue later. So I'm going to press uh, along and uh, welcome the video. And I'm so glad you linked the rural disadvantage, the systemic and structural problems to some of our most important solutions um, and the need to invest in that. And I know our next speaker will speak about the health workforce as well. So let's listen to the community health workers um, um, and their perspectives on the next topic. And it's really nice to see the thread across these different themes. Since that pandemic came, if you can check in the health system, most of uh, the work that is done in the health system is done mostly by women. So since that this pandemic come, comes into our lives as the health care workers and health workers like doctors and nurses, it has bring some uh, lot of things whereby uh, you, 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 most of us were infected with COVID-19. And it was very difficult to choose between a, a patient and you because if I choose not to, to help a patient, it means that I will be neglecting a patient. So most of us, we, most of us, we did put our lives in danger whereby we, we could not choose to, to abandon the patient. So we took, a, we, 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 we placed our, our lives into danger whereby we helping patients. It's where now some of, most of us, we come being infected. Yeah, I think it has even killed um, the system that we had been using for so long. I'll make a few examples. Um, with us as CHWs, in my, in my clinic, we have a plan. That's on Monday we're doing this, on Tuesday we're, until Friday. So uh, when the pandemic came, it has stopped all the programs. We have Pilam Dwanas where we visit the kids on Tuesday and give them vitamin A and deworming. Those programs have stopped because now we are all focusing on this pandemic as if there's nothing else, as if there's no HIV, as if there's no TB, as if there's no child that we need to check which the child is growing well. The gender issue has made, uh, you know, and made things, the, the, the corona has made gender issues very worsened. You know, as we know that, that we are the woman, the most oppressed, I can say that you, even you are working, you must come home and even do some household work. 
and the man, if the man is working, he will come and read the newspaper, waiting for you to give food. Meanwhile, you both working. So why I'm saying it, it, it worsened things is that everyone was at home because of the levels of lockdown. Yeah? That made, if we look at even in our court, a gender-based violence uh, thing worsen. Because your men are used to go out weekends and leave you at home doing the household work. Now you're stuck with him. Each and everything that you're doing, it's not good. You know, uh, there were problems. There are many gender-based violence issues uh, in our areas. I can, I can mention one when one woman even ran to my house and said, uh, my husband just clapped me because I just gave him a cabbage and bread for the lunch and he said, where's the meat? Then the woman said, we are both in lockdown. Where must I get the meat? Um, it's, it has been different. I think it has been hard for us as females because remember when we are in level, like from level five, especially in level five, we were working as CHWs and everyone was at home. Uh, mostly I'm working in, in informal settlements here. So as I work in informal settlements, you'll find Wuti, there's an RPP house full of guys smoking weed. And I have to go because it's in my area. I need to work there. Maybe I'll find my, one of my colleagues to accompany me. And when you get in that house, it's, it's, you, you are scared. You, you're not even sure if you are going to go out. And in our team, we don't have a male um, CHW. It's only us females. And sometimes you could see it's not even safe for us. You know, when you have foot, I think even the, 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 the garden boy is better than us because he, he knows exactly if I'm here, I'm going to cut the trees. And with us, it's like we don't have the contracts with the scope of work because now we do everything. They will say, come and assist in cut office, come and assist in this, 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 and that, and that, and that. And then there's no money after all. So compelling. Speaking about the personal consequences of the lockdown on women, um, the fact that we were kept at home, um, the implications for gender-based violence with families, um, really livelihoods being lost, the stress of that, and then the the not be, being kept at home, the implications of that in terms of violence, but also not being able to reach services or other social networks that would usually help you in those contexts. But also the implications of who is looking after the sick, who's looking after the families and the children who are kept home from school. Um, it's women who, are, who have borne the brunt of this pandemic and I think the voices of the community health workers here have spoken eloquently um, about and emphatically about what are the implications for their own work, their own uh, balance of how they manage their work, but also their home responsibilities, which don't change, and also the conditions of their work, how precarious it is, the huge expectations we have, and the total lack of support we provide. So to speak about this and much more, we have with us um, Perpetual Euphoria Mpofo from Ghana, 
She's a nurse um, and is the president of Ghana's Registered Nurses and Midwives Association and has over 15 years of experience in trade unionism. She's the current chairperson of the West Africa Health Sector Unions Network, WASUN, of Public Services International, and the chairperson of the Ghana PSI National Coordinating Council. She's a nurse educator and has over 20 years of experience in the health sector in Ghana as a nurse. She received many awards in recognition of her dedication to strengthening trade unions and her passion for issues bordering on social protection, migration, and adolescent sexual and reproductive health. Uh, I'm so glad we have you here on this webinar. Uh, welcome and please your reflections and comments on the topic. Thank you very much, Asha, and uh, greetings to everyone. I want to first thank the organizers for this invitation to share this beautiful platform with the other panelists. I'm, I'm really honored. And I must say that the theme, the main theme for the webinar, which has been running um, for some time and will continue somewhere in November, the 5% continent grid device solidarity is actually apt. Um, looking at the, the consequences of this pandemic and how it has shown the inequalities, the poor health systems, the, um, the underfunding of health systems and all that. It's, it's very crucial. And I want to appreciate the organizers for taking note and taking this up. So when we talk about the community health workers, I think we all know who they are and what they do. And they are basically community health members or they are um, appointed by uh, the community members themselves for, to work with organizations. And therefore, when it comes to their salaries and other conditions, it's basically coming from these organizations. And they, they really help to provide basic health and medical care to their communities. And they are capable, really capable of providing preventive promotional and rehabilitation care to community members. And depending on the jurisdiction within which they are working, um, they may be referred to as um, uh, health coaches or um, community health advisors, outreach workers, but basically they are known as community health workers. So, we must know that majority of these community health workers are women. And are women workers um, within the public sector space or within the private sector space. And the pandemic in itself has brought a lot of challenges that they have lived through um, the first wave, the second wave, the third wave, and currently the, the, the issues that we are having to deal with. And it has, it has reflected in terms of uh, work, in terms of risk, safety, um, COVID-19 infections, um, ailments that they, they have experienced themselves, and in some cases, even death. Generally, when you take the health system, whether public or private, whether at national level, at regional level, or globally, women form the greatest percentage of the, the health workforce. 
And most of the um, health workforce, being women, um, makes us understand and appreciate the fact that what they do daily, day in, day out, it's not just about the work that they do. They're having to care for their families. They're having to provide in terms of um, money, basically, for their dependents to live on. And in, in some cases, they are actually the breadwinners of their family. So it leaves a, a, great, a great responsibility for women in the health sector space. And when we talk about the community health workers, the fact that they work in these communities as espoused by those we saw in the video, they face dangerous, dangerous working conditions sometimes because they work in private work um, households. They are sometimes at risk of violence. Their scope of work is not clearly spelled out. It changes almost every day. They are, pro they are, poorly, they are poorly defined as in terms of their, their scope of work. And it keeps expanding depending on what the, the organization they are working for or the entity they are working for needs them to do. So it makes it really difficult for, for them as community health workers. And in most of the West African region, and I, I'm not so sure if it's for the whole of Africa, but I can, I can deduce from what we have heard that it's almost for all of Africa that the community health workers work in line with the mainstream, the mainstream professionals. And we are talking about nurses, um, midwives, doctors, pharmacists, um, and other allied health professionals, like the field technicians, our community health uh, nurses, our public health nurses, uh, our public health um, experts and all that. And sometimes they also find themselves attached to health facilities where they work. And therefore they bring a lot to the table when you look at the global picture of health delivery, because they understand the communities in which they work, they are able to communicate in a language that the people understand. So whether we are having to deal with vaccine hesitancy or we are dealing with uh, vaccine uptake or, or whatever it is, um, in terms of the varied programs that have been carried out within the, the communities, they understand they, and they actually help in terms of um, the achieving the deliverables on those projects and, um, and programs that are rolled out. Now, I want to speak briefly on the, on the divides, uh, gender divides, and you, we, we need to appreciate that um, when COVID came initially, um, we all didn't understand the nature of the virus, its impacts um, on communities or on health. Um, we understood initially from the beginning the fact that it was dangerous, it was very infectious, people could die and all that. But one thing that was clear was that in most of the responses, in most of the national responses in most countries, the initial, the initial response was we need to use, um, we, 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 are, we need to engage doctors to understand um, how we can deal with this pandemic. And most nations even forgot that there were nurses, there were community health workers, there were lab um, technicians who could help or could assist. It took some of us to speak and speak to make it, to make authorities understand that the, the, the problem at hand was not just going to be about doctors, it was going to be about everybody within the, the hierarchy of the, the, the health 
the health system. And therefore we need to bring everybody on board, listen to everybody and appreciate what every professional grouping and every other um, worker within the space could also bring on board. And that resulted in many cases where um, some of uh, the volunteers were brought on board as um, uh, tracers, contact tracers, and to assist with um, education, to assist with uh, vaccine rollouts, and so on and so forth. For mainstream professionals, and I want to speak specifically on nurses and midwives, um, we stayed in the clinical area and in the outpatient departments and on the wards and so on, providing the necessary care that is needed. But of course, the challenges of the pandemic was quite overwhelming because the PPEs were not available. The, 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 sometimes you, you needed um, a, a whole number of people to be tested because one person has um, been found to be positive. Testing was uh, not adequate um, sometimes because employers wanted to avoid having to invest in testing and isolation and quarantine, uh, provision of the accommodation for same, um, they would not disclose the status of somebody who has fallen sick and uh, it is suspected that that person has tested positive all in the hope of reducing costs and managing the, the response. So these were some of the dire challenges that actually resulted in a lot of infections among nurses and midwives and other professionals and um, resulted in some cases in death. When you talk about the community health workers, same issues affected them because they were working in the communities, they didn't have the adequate uh, protective equipment and they needed to also continue with some of the work that they were doing. But most importantly, um, some of the programs and projects they were on um, were more or less abandoned because the focus was on the pandemic. And we, we the, the maternal and child services that needed to be rolled out and so on were, were deeply affected. So at the end of the day, if you listen to some of the statistics that have been churned out, um, a lot of um, the maternal deaths that could have been avoided within this period also actually um, could not be um, prevented. And a lot of um, um, infant mortalities that have also occurred within the period. And we have missed certain opportunities in, uh, in terms of vaccinating um, children in terms of other conditions like, the, um, like polio and the rest that could have actually had um, impact on us achieving the sustainable development goals and universal health coverage as a whole. So it is indeed um, an issue that going forward, we all need to talk about. And I'm happy that the organizers have organized this, um, this, this webinar and uh, giving us the opportunity to talk about some of the issues. And we need to also focus on the gender specific challenges for women and the women health force and look at how we can build our systems to um, be able to support going into the future because we never know when the next pandemic is going to hit. And gender-based violence is one issue that is also um, was also seen during the lockdowns. And it's about time each and every nation 
um, look at the ILO Convention 190 and ratify it within our nations. It's very, very important so that we can protect um, female um, workers within the health sector space. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Perpetual, for sharing your perspectives and insights on not just how women have been impacted by the pandemic, um, the pressures put on men and the resulting consequences on gender-based violence, but also their role in the health workforce. The fact that we, we focus on the lack of access by women, but women are also the main providers um, they're the, the health workforce, particularly at the lower levels, is um, predominantly female. And what have been the issues in terms of access to PPE, the work pressures, and especially the challenges faced by community health workers? Thank you for speaking so eloquently um, about those issues. And we look forward to hearing more, particularly as a nurse and as someone who's worked in trade unions. On, on ways of building solidarity um, uh, across professions in that sense. Um, let me, we are, uh, we've been listening to these speakers and to the videos. I think it would be fantastic. And I, I really want to acknowledge um, those who have been, there have been some questions and answers in the chat section and uh, really appreciate the inputs from Elroy Paulus in terms of calling out uh, the challenges in South Africa, how problematic it can be when your employer holds you back from accessing healthcare, but also calling out men in terms of saying it's an opportunity to learn new skills if you're at home to take on and share the burden. Um, and I think um, I, as we move forward, please uh, feel comfortable to put in more questions in the chat we will have a dedicated space where you can either reflect on what you said or ask in person. So let's let's have a chance to speak with Moses, Itai, and Perpetual on, on some of the themes that have come up in the webinar. And the webinar is titled 5% Continent. And I think the speakers have all talked about the problems of access, especially in rural areas, the strain on public health systems, you know, it's a, it's a narrative of lack of resources and, and, and broken systems. How much, let me start off with Moses, your own perspectives on, does this narrative hide the historical antecedents of these uh, inequalities and the structural drivers that underpin these, the, these inequalities and your perspective on how we can change that? Thank you so much, and it's very um, exciting to to hear and learn more about what other colleagues have been going through. I I think that many of the challenges that we are facing are indeed historical, and uh, unless we relook at our health system in a way that we've been preaching for a long time, uh, things may not change. You see, the the whole aspects or the whole approaches that have been introduced that make us believe that approaching things from a private point of view is the way to go, is, is disempowering our government as much as possible. And we are bringing a lot of um, uh, private practice at the upfront 
which which is continuing to be a problem. We can't do basic things like regulation. You know, I deal with regulation all the time because we think that the where the health system is, um, things will be automatic. I, I think things can never be automatic. We have moved into uh, PPPs, public-private partnerships, as some of the solutions. And I've always argued that for me, PPPs is not an option for regulation. It is regularizing. And, and that regularizing is taking us to the historical things that we have always seen, you know, colonial effects, you know, structure adjustment effects, which continuously affect the local person. So usually the local person will feel when the jab is not in their arms or if they are not receiving what they are supposed to be receiving. But what's the cause of the problem? You know, when you come to the global conversations on access to vaccines that we are talking about, when we come to the injustices that have been caused to our health systems, historically, right from colonial days, why aren't we able to manufacture what we need? Why are we still doing importations of these needed commodities up to 90%? You know, resources have been leaking. Resources have been leaving the continent for a very long time. So unless we begin to bridge and have a conversation that is honest to actually say, this is the time when we need to rebuild these health systems from the lens that decolonize the approaches that we've had. There is no, there is no amount of explanation on, on bad things that we see. I'll give you an example of Uganda. The minister has deliberately refused to actually declare COVID-19 an epidemic. Now, the way the laws were crafted are that if you do not declare the COVID-19 an epidemic, there are steps you can't take. There are steps like how business is done. There are steps like who is responsible for what. So what you're left with is the colonial approach of blaming the, the citizens and locking them inside and militaristic approaches. And you see, this is not the way to go because I think where we, are, we have moved, we need to change these frameworks. We need to change the way we work. And we need to stop hiding into PPPs, which at the moment we keep, we keep talking about. So for me, indeed, I agree that many of the things are, are historical, but there, is, there should be a point when we begin something. There should be a point when we begin the tough conversations and shift as much as we can. It may not be the big shift that we need, but we need to shift. I think COVID-19 has demonstrated that no matter how much the state runs away from responsibilities, it is the primary duty bearer of these responsibilities. And unless we actually deal with that, things are not going to be the same. So those structural changes have to happen and we have to look at the history which has led us here. I think the World Bank policies that they have always talked about have failed, tremendously failed in various ways. You know, the, the results-based based financing has been criticized. We have put, you know, you, you can't apply results-based financing in an emergency situation like COVID-19. So what are those things that we must be doing better than we are doing at the moment? Thank you. Thank you, Moses. So you spoke about historical underinvestment, bad global policies, whether it was structural adjustment or user fees, um, our assumptions about the private sector, but also to call Africa has been supporting the rest of the world with resources, and yet we don't have our own. We do have manufacturing capacity. There's, you know, there are differences. Of, you know, there is South Africa is producing vaccines, but not at, for all. There could be so much more, and that investment 
to work across countries, to create a union, to invest, to create a market and, and public investment in vaccines. I wonder if Perpetual or Itai want to jump in here with any uh, perspectives on this question. And I note in the chat, um, participants are asking, what would a decolonial healthcare system look like? Any thoughts on that and reflections on what Moses said? Who wants to go? Perpetual, jump in. Okay, so I think that it's important that um, we look at the issue of uh, the global dynamics of, of health and um, remove the, the issues of supremacy over healthcare systems or the provision of the needed tools for health. And, and the, the issues about rich countries providing for poor countries and all those kind of issues. Um, we, we have seen the in-depth um, uh, angles of what's, what's uh, COVID, the COVID pandemic has brought. And I agree with Moses on the fact that we need to, Africa needs to move, move into the issues of developing a lot of vaccines for the, even the already um, existing um, conditions that can be vaccinated. So the, the billions of dollars that we sink into importation of these um, of these of these drugs into the continent, we can save a lot of it if we we, we move with science and look at the production of these vaccines within our own countries and on the continent. We must also um, in the in, in immediate systems. Um, Governize more efforts in ensuring that we have the trips waiver on the on the patents that exist for the for the vaccines that are already out there, and we must understand that until we all get vaccinated in this current situation of movement of people, um, we can we cannot all be safe. And the hoarding of vaccines that um, has been termed as vaccine apartheid, we, we have to look at it. If you are having all these vaccines that can expire in a certain uh, number of months and you are hoarding them, keeping it for your population, and yet you know that um, it can also help other nations, why are you keeping them? Um, I think the world, in a way, lack, is lacking leadership in some of these things. And I know Dr. Tedros has lamented a lot um, at the WHO level on some of these things. And I think the leadership, the G8, the G21, and all the rest of these countries must look critically and make provisions of some of these vaccines to countries that need them. Because we are way below, we are way below where we are. And if you term it as a 5% continent, you are right in 10 minutes so, because we are way below the, the vaccination ex ex expectation. And um, um, I think the lessons learned in this pandemic should inform us on the way to be prepared in the future. Over to you, Thank Ashley. you. Thank you very much, Professor. And it's yeah. really, I think it links to, Itai uh, 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 is jumping in and spark, but really sort of, you know, we were talking about decolonization, but we're not far from colonial times where, you know, we are expecting those wealthy nations to give the, to hand over supplies and they haven't, they've kept it to their own self-interest. So good for calling that out. Um, 
and it's it's a wake up call for all of us. Itai, you want to come in? Yeah, I just want to add and say, you know, what we now need in Africa, we, we need political will, and we also need the political leadership. I, I really want to reiterate this, especially to our leaders in Africa, that there is no way Africa will be able to achieve universal health coverage by depending on external donors or external funders. Uh, what we see in most African countries is that, uh, yes, uh, at some point you may be getting a lot of external support, but as soon as the, you don't agree politically uh, with those uh, rich countries, uh, you may be left completely exposed. We saw that in Zimbabwe, uh, to the extent that Zimbabwe was not even able to access you know, the other global resources that were benefiting, you know, other countries. So what Africa needs is to seriously think about domestic health financing. Uh, we have even regional, you know, commitments and agreements like the Abuja commitment, but you also realize that very few African countries have been able to meet uh, the, you know, 15% allocation, you know, to the health sector. So I think it's high time Africa should do rule, really look inside. We, we have a lot of resources, especially if we can address, you know, the issue of leakages, you know, and, and to a greater extent, you know, corruption, which I think is our biggest, you know, challenge in most African countries. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so I want to, there are, I want, uh, it, it's good. Colleagues are adding questions to the chat box, so I um, it would be good if the panelists keep an eye on that as well, um, and we'll come back to some of these questions. I wonder if um, so. You're talking about leadership um, and the uh, opportunity to do things differently. I want to come to Itai on what do you think are key things that we can do to address some of the rural-urban divides in health systems. I know you spoke quite emphatically about strengthening primary health care and community health workers, but linking on the opportunity to do things differently in leadership, are there some other things or um, reflections from what others have spoken um, that you would like to put forward? You're on yep. mute. Yeah, maybe let me start by also reiterating, you know, the position uh, that was uh, very much well articulated by Dr. Tedros from WHO uh, when he said, you know, the spread of COVID-19 reminds us that nobody's safe until everybody's safe. And uh, I think uh, we also need to link that to what we are seeing happening uh, in terms of, uh, say, you know, vaccine nationalism. Uh, in, in rich countries. Uh, right now, we know that uh, in most African countries, only about 4% you know, of the populations have been vaccinated. But we see some rich countries are now even giving boosters you know, to their populations. And, and we have been saying, you know, COVID-19, uh, we need to address the issue of solidarity. We need to address issues you know, of cooperation. Uh, because, you know, COVID-19 virus does not know any borders. 
So even if we are to vaccinate a lot of people in urban areas and living out those in rural communities, uh, still at the end of the day, uh, our people are mobile. And, 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 and we may not you know, necessarily achieve uh, anything if, if we live uh, out you know, certain communities. But I think what we really need, especially in Africa, uh, and responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, it requires you know, a, a comprehensive uh, multi-sectoral response. Uh, definitely, we need solidarity. Uh, we need effective collaboration across actors. Uh, from household, you know, up to national level. Uh, we also need to address the issue of health systems strengthening. And, and most importantly, like I said, uh, we need to put our own money, you know, into the health sector and, and make sure that there, you know, uh, we address issues of equity. Uh, resources should also be trickling down uh, to, the, to the lower levels. And, and, and these are, you know, the primary, you know, healthcare services. Uh, in most African countries, 65% of the population are rural. Uh, unfortunately, when it comes to resource sharing, uh, you'd then realize that uh, it's the other way around. So I think Africa really needs to invest in primary healthcare. Uh, we need to revive primary healthcare, but most importantly, we also need to value our own health workers. We need to appreciate our health workers because without the health workers, there's no health system strengthening. Thank you, Ty. Um, does uh, Perpetual or, or Moses, would you like to come in on anything that's been mentioned by Ty um, or the participants? Okay, let me just add something small to what Ty has said. And you see, um, we, we, the lessons learned from COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic is huge. But the impact on us as a region is the fact that our health systems were already very weakened. It had its own problems before the pandemic also hit. So going forward, we must invest more in the health infrastructure. We must invest in the human resource. The human resource is key. And that is the health professionals and all those who support the health systems. We must invest in research, research that will impact on the development of medications, vaccines, and all the, um, the, the personal protective equipment and all those things that we need as a people so that we can cut on, on, the, on the imports of these um, already um, developed um, items. If we get the raw materials locally or we can import the raw materials, we should be able to do some of these things ourselves. And I, I can use Ghana as an example that before the pandemic, we didn't even know that there were huge manufacturing companies that were actually manufacturing certain products and exporting them, whilst we were not even making use of them in Ghana. So um, we, we need to look within within our own nations and identify the, the the resources that we have and make use of them we through the pandemic we've heard that there were even companies that were locally producing um, test kits for 
for other other like the vaginal um, conditions and other, and they were able to now develop test kits for COVID. So we must look at the private sector and also put in the systems that will allow the growth so that they can employ more people. And at the end of the day, our nations will be safeguarded. When you look deep into the health sector, just like, um, uh, I can't remember the name, but, uh, was it Moses who mentioned it? We are having health professionals migrating to other countries. And it's all because of poor conditions of service within our own countries. So when you have um, day in, day out, nurses and midwives are moving, doctors are moving, go to Nigeria, go to Zimbabwe, come to Ghana, and it's going to impact on our own achievements of the sustainable development goals and universal health coverage. But we must invest in these human resources that we have and see how we can grow the sector. If it's about developing systems that will aid us to adequately export these professionals to other countries, so be it. But we must have enough of these professionals to also assist our own nations. Thank you. Thank you, Perpetual, for listing out the many prior policy priorities and the agenda moving forward at a policy level. Um, Moses, would you like to add anything to the discussion? I, I, I think the important thing is to emphasize that, you see, it, it all starts home. We cannot lay claims outside if we have not cleaned up our houses. So as everyone is saying, national level accountability is important. And up until we have fully accounted, um, for what we've been able to collect and what we actually have back home, that's when we, we can go out. So it means that civil society and the other actors and approaches like community empowerment are important approaches that we need to continuously emphasize and ensure that there is a certain level of accountability for resources that we already do have. So as we go into policy processes that call for solidarity, that call for support here and there, I think it starts with us. We have to reclaim the internal resources that we do have. There is no way we can always go out when we still have, you know, reports of corruption, um, like we've seen in the pandemic, you know, corruption even by the private sector of our own, not um, just multinational companies or companies that are coming out. We need to, to, to deal with that. The states need to re-empower themselves and be able to regulate rather than regu regularization. We've seen parliament passing lots of millions of shillings for, for, for deals that, that are going to private sector. Private companies which are Ugandan-owned or Zimbabwe-owned and politicians implicated. So as we go out to lay those claims, the leakages that are happening at the national level are also important um, to be dealing with. If we are able to bridge those leakages, probably we'll be able to pay our human resources much better. We'll be able to have much, much more resources that the health sector needs. Thank you. Thank you, Moses. And I think you've spoken to the person in the chat box, uh, um, Tembesile, who is calling out the issue of co corruption as well and the challenges of um, what has happened with the existing resources we have and the implications for the budget. Before we close off, and I, I really, this fantastic chat contributions in terms of provocative questions, but also uh, the post from Maza on calling out that we are giving out booster shots uh, in North America, Europe, and Israel when so many countries in Africa 
are still only rolling out initial, the first dose of, of vaccines. Um, I want to come to um, Perpetual and just given her history in trade unionism, and we are coming to a close, but I wonder if you have quick reflections, given your back, background in the health workforce on opportunities of solidarity across the health workforce um, in terms of confronting COVID-19. What has been your experience and what do you think are the opportunities and the challenges? Thanks. Okay, um, that's an interesting question. And I, I must say that, um, yes, solidarity exists, but to some extent, because um, the divides are there in terms of uh, if you are working at the community health workers level or within the mainstream, um, what kind of cadre of professional are you? And as it relates to your salary levels or what you stand to have acquired within this pandemic. And let me use Ghana, for example, the government announced um, medical insurance for frontline um, workers, announced frontline uh, allowance and all those things. And um, it, it's created a lot of mistrust because people found, would recognize themselves as frontline workers, and yet they are not uh, in, in that definition considered as frontline, and therefore you are not entitled to receive that kind of frontline um, allowance. And um, when you take where the level of the community health workers, as it were, with poor wages and all that, it's it, and yet are also required to volunteer and help with contact tracing and all those issues that we had to deal with. It, 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 it creates a lot of um, divisions in itself. And I think that in, in all of this, there's still opportunities for us to collaborate, to partner and work together because um, without that, we cannot build the required health um, systems that we need. It's, a, it's teamwork at most of the time, at, at most places, it's more about teamwork and we need each other um, to work together to provide the kind of quality services that our nationals need. And therefore we need um, to understand the dynamics and for us as trade unions, we need to continue to advocate for the interests of our members and ensure that we influence policy at the high levels to impact on the work that they do and to also impact on their conditions of service. This is very important and it is our call. And we don't have to relegate our duties on this. And sometimes you'll find trade union leaders aligning, um, walking the corridors of government and aligning with employers and governments and forgetting the call, their call to duty in terms of speaking for, for their members or the workers as, as it's, it needs to be. Thank you. Thank you very much for Petrol, a very important voice, calling trade unions themselves to account and, and speaking about the inequalities. I don't know if Itai or Moses wants to come in on this issue from their own experience and perspective. Itai, you're unmuted. Okay. Um, as an organization that is uh, deeply rooted at community level, uh, I, I, I feel that, uh, you know, we should not politicize structures for community participation in health. 
uh, we, we need to formalize those structures. Uh, structures such as the health center committees are very key in terms of, you know, issues of accountability and also issues of information flow from the health facility to the community and from the community to the health facility. And, and, and the government should do uh, not then use these structures, you know, during election campaigns and so forth, uh, and, and, and they should remain apolitical. Uh, it is also important that uh, uh, we are seeing shrinking space in most uh, countries in terms of civil society engagement. Uh, the government should also look at civil society you know, as partners, because we complement the government in so many areas. Uh, but what we see is the, as soon as you start uh, questioning certain processes, uh, someone in the chat box raised the issue of looting of, you know, COVID-19 materials. It has been happening in almost every other African country. But as soon as you raise those issues, you then become the enemy of the state. So I think it's important that the government should appreciate, you know, the role of civil society and uh, instead of victimizing and arresting, you know, civil society actors, uh, we, we, we need to, to, to work together, uh, even though uh, we have different roles. Uh, but maybe let me also finish by saying that uh, we have got, uh, you know, accountability institutions. Uh, such as the, you know, Auditor General, uh, and then in South Africa, uh, you also have in some countries like the Ombudsman and so forth. I think those institutions should be uh, well equipped and supported with resources. And uh, the reports that they produce, especially from the Auditor General, uh, those reports should be taken seriously because what we are seeing, like in Zimbabwe, almost year in, year out, the Auditor General raises the red flag, you know, on leakages. But not even a single person has ever been, you know, arrested and, you know, taken to jail. Uh, but we see, you know, national resources being looted uh, left, right and center. I think Moses Mulumba raised this issue to say, let's address our own, you know, hygiene issues at domestic level first because it's 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 it is wrong to say africa is poor we have got so many resources in africa uh, but if you look at the leakages that are happening in africa they are shocking zimbabwe is losing more than 1.5 billion every year you know that is being you know taken outside the country by not just the public sector but also even the private sector so all those are issues that i think we we really need to address so that if those resources are channeled into the system, they can then benefit, you know, the ordinary person. Uh, and then we may move away from this issue of being cry babies every time. Because I don't see the Western countries, you know, risking, you know, in most of these African countries. Uh, we need to, 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 to sort out, uh, you know, our own issues, especially concerning the issue of corruption. That's our biggest challenge right now in most African countries. Thank you. And I really want to thank the participants. We, we, there's so much to discuss, but I really want to keep your chats and inputs uh, and reflections going. Um, 
Moses, any last words from your side? Uh, um, I do want, we have five minutes left. I don't know if you have a brief comment. Um, I could also, uh, I'm really glad people are putting chats, but we haven't, I don't know if there's someone, one of the participants who have a burning comment. So maybe first to Moses, and then we'll see if there are amongst participants uh, a burning comment. I think that for me, the the closing statement is that, you know, COVID-19 has given us a lesson, a proper lesson, that first, it has to be national systems. Second, we have to take charge of the national systems. This is a time when we have not been able to lay claims on other countries to be able to have um, systems fixed because everyone was busy with their own systems. But at the end of the day, what do we have in our systems? We have prioritized investing in, in, in army. We have prioritized investing in infrastructure and energy and everything. But at the end of the day, the health sector, I think, has demonstrated that it can put everything back to its needs. So investing in it and uh, thinking about health systems as security issues, thinking about it as, as an economic issue. Today in Uganda, schools are still closed because of the health issue. So I, I think it's a huge lesson that we need to consider moving forward. And for us that do advocacy, need to always use this as an example to remind the government to invest uh, much more in the health sector. Thank you very much. Thank you, Moses, to remind us of the primacy in, uh, of health and not just in healthcare, but as uh, Adoha Aku has just said, in the social determinants of health as well. Um, so we are coming to a close and we have a very exciting next, those of you who stay tuned, I think there have been a lot of common themes about not just the social divides, but the drivers of those divides in terms of greed and also calls of accountability of how to do things differently if we really want a decolonial anti-patriarchal health system that is that plays its role in, in uh, uplifting people and in developing our countries. Um, and the next webinar series is on solidarity. We have a few minutes left, and I just, I'm so grateful for those of you posting chats, but I wonder if the last word, if there's someone amongst participants, and I apologize, we've run out of time, but is there from the participants, someone who has been listening and who is all fired up listening to the discussions who would like to speak? Um, and comment on what we've been listening on. Um, it's terrific that you have been uh, putting in chats, but I wonder if there's someone who would like to share their perspectives. Well, I'm glad you have stayed with us um, and, um, and we're grateful for your comments and questions. Um, I think it's been an I don't know where, as I said, two hours seem long, but it's been a very engaging discussion. I really want to thank uh, Moses, Itai, and Perpetual for sharing their insights and the community health workers who took the time to share their experiences through those videos. So you had perspectives from those at the front line to those who are working in civil society, to those who are working in the professions and the commonality of perspectives in terms of building our national health systems as a key way of overcoming these social divides and the importance of leadership and the call for accountability 
um, to address these different forms of inequality. Um, so we look forward to continuing the conversation and please come back. I think it's on the 24th of November. If I'm not wrong, can we put the poster up? Um, and I just want to thank all of you for being with us as well as um, the speakers and all of you for actively engaging with your posts. And uh, please come back together for, for the next uh, uh, installation of this fantastic webinar series. And with thanks to the Health Justice Initiative, the African Alliance and the People's Health Movement for keeping these issues alive and bringing us together. Thank you. Thank you.